We're fortunate to have Jared Moore on this podcast. Moore is the coach development manager for the New South Wales Basketball, which works with more than 80 basketball associations in Australia's most populous state. Moore has quite the background in helping grow the game and teaching coaches how to coach. Coach Moore, thank you for talking basketball with us today. How's everything in Australia? Uh, it's beautiful and sunny and uh, we can't complain down here. We've got kids playing and coaches coaching and uh, thank you for having me on and thank you to everyone listening. I hope you get something out of it. Well, let's uh, start right off um, with finding out a little bit about what you do. So can you tell me what your position as a coach development man- manager, what does that entail? So it, it, it basically entails everything that is described in the title. I spend all of my time managing the development of coaches. Um, and that, in, that means everything from providing education opportunities, um, which we call accreditations. Um, you're not allowed to coach at a certain level in, uh, in Australian youth sport without having an accreditation. And by getting an accreditation, you're aligning yourself with the basketball, Australian basketball, New South Wales uh, styles of play and language and, and, and keeping coaches up to date with what's going on in the world of basketball and the way we should be teaching our kids. And then I spend a lot of my time uh, either talking to coaches, watching trainings, um, and even trying to come up with ideas for, for coaches to connect with each other. And, and connecting with each other is more powerful than, than what I could ever provide them. So uh, just a personal question here, you know, there's different paths that we can take uh, in our love for basketball. I mean, why are you going down this path? Uh, very, very good question. This is, a, <laughs> this is something that I discovered very much as a young coach. I remember coaching an under 12 girls team. And um, this, was, this was an under 12 girls division one team, meaning that it was some of the best girls in an area making a team of 10 and we got to a state championship final ended up winning the final and we we won the state championship and I remember I remember the feeling that I got after winning that state championship it was just kind of unfulfilling and um, um, my my inner self um, said is this it is that is that all you get you just kind of get a trophy and and then that's it you're just done with all 10 girls and then you get another 10 girls and you try to repeat the same thing and I, I discovered quite quickly after a couple of years of validation that I wasn't hungry for winning and losing. Um, but what I was hungry about and hungry the most about was, was growing the game and how basketball could be used as a very healthy vehicle um, to, to enlighten and enrich people's lives um, on multiple levels. So I kind of uh, had a very quick pub discussion with a very experienced um, coach educator by the name of Patrick Hunt, who's a big figure in, in Australian basketball and is the former president of the World Association of Basketball Coaches. And I ran into him in a pub one night during a coaches conference and I said, Patrick, I, I don't really live for winning and losing, um, but I'm very addicted to growing the game. What kind of field should I get into um, to do with basketball? And he said, Jared, educate coaches. And, uh, and that kind of stuck with me. It was a very quick conversation and uh, this opportunity came up. I applied and I got it and I've um, very, very much been addicted to it. And I still coach at 18 because there's still a, a, an itch you have to scratch. But um, talking to coaches and enriching their lives to then affect a further 10 more players, I figured out was a, a faster and, and more enjoyable way to grow the game. 
because if I just coach 10 kids, I'm growing the game by 10 kids. But I, if I affect 10 coaches, then I'm hopefully helping 100 kids. And hopefully that snowball effect will grow on. So that's what I'm passionate and addicted to. So, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that we could uh, go down in this conversation, but kind of the way I proposed this to you was talking about, you know, kind of developing new coaches. Uh, I know that uh, I'm probably going to have a brand new coach um, this next season. And I know coaches throughout the state or, uh, of Idaho, um, you know, have that happen regularly. So, you know, what in your experience has been the biggest issue that new coaches face? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I took a little bit of time thinking about this, but a lot of new coaches, their biggest issue is trying to find a positive feedback loop. Um, now what that means is when a young coach comes into the system and they start coaching, there's no real validation to them to let them know that what they're doing is right. Um, other than the winning and losing and other than the parents on the side, but the, but then here's the conflict is the coach might have a definition of success. The athletes might have their own definition of success. And then the parents might have their own definition of success. So what the coach is being um, uh, illusioned by is the athletes and the parents definition of success, which a lot of the time is winning and scoring a lot of baskets. Um, now, as you grow older to become a more experienced coach, you then discover things and, and you begin to define your own definition of success. So, Young coaches, when they come into the system, sometimes they don't feel so supported and they're not sure whether what they're doing is the right thing. So it's important to put them down a path of, of, of confidence by letting them know what they're doing is right, um, showing them support, trying to invest in their time to develop and, and uh, hopefully that coach will grow in confidence um, season by season. And that was definitely a very similar path as I reflect on my own journey. That, that was um, something that I ran into. Um, but that's, that's one of the whole agendas to me, kind of take this role, trying to connect new coaches with the more experienced coaches. And, and um, that's something that's very common. Just as a young coach, always trying to find those positive feedback loops and trying to get great advice from, from very experienced coaches. I think even for uh, experienced coaches, that's uh, still something that you're looking for. But uh, totally, totally yeah. <laughs> but that's a good point and something that we should recognize. So, um, what are some methods that uh, older coaches can can use to to do that for newer coaches? So, older coaches can invest time into these younger coaches, but then there's a a uh, how can you tell whether the young coach you're investing time in is really paying off. And from an older coach's perspective, uh, if they can see that a younger coach is really dedicated to the process and really investing time into development and appreciating the time that this more experienced coach is providing them, um, then that's a big sign that you're, you're onto a little gold nugget. If there's a young coach who is hungry to, to learn, hungry to grow, um, is invested in their own development, um, then that's everything you could ask for as a more experienced coach. Now, how, how would you approach an, an, an amateur coach into the game? Well, I remember my first experience as a young coach. I remember a very experienced coach by the name of Marty Hansen. He walked past my training one time and um, everyone knew who he was. He was a very experienced state coach and, and a master coach and um, rest in peace to Marty Hansen. But he walked past my training one time and he said, 
coach, I can already tell by the smiles on your players' faces that you're doing a great job. And that was not only confidence boosting and validation, but he went out of his way to notice something great and positive about my training and then gave me very prompt feedback that lifted me and made me feel this tall to 10 feet tall. And the way that I can encourage more experienced coaches is kind of to pass on the same message. So instead of going to a young coaches training and telling them what to do every single time, just kind of find the small things that they do well. Um, and then as you build a bigger and deeper relationship, then that's where it can kind of go down a path of organic mentorship. And then this coach can rely on the more experienced coach um, for, for more precise and concise feedback. You might get into this a little bit more in a question that I have a little bit later, but so how, how much of this is like X's and O's and then how much is it just like those <laughs> dealing with uh, parents, dealing with kids and stuff like that? Um, making, making kids happy, you know, uh, hmm. how much, uh, how much time do you spend with that? Yeah. So, so just to be clear, uh, am I speaking from a coach's perspective on how they would handle parents or how do we teach coaches how to handle parents? Uh, how, to, how to teach coaches to, how to deal with parents. Yeah, so that's, a, that's an ever-evolving space and, and one we're only starting to scratch into because this, this again goes down the path of parents kind of making up their own definition of success, mm -hmm. um, but then the coach having their own and how to communicate that. Um, so... If I'm a young coach and I, and I have a, a group of parents that aren't quite on board or not bought into what I'm trying to sell, um, it, it's, there are multiple ways that you can communicate with your parent group and any coach needs to find that particular way to then communicate it and articulate it to their parents. So uh, if you want to do it through, excuse me, if you want to do it through email, fine. If you want to do it um, and sit down with each parent individually, that may be time consuming. One of the things that was very interesting for me, I remember doing a little experiment with my parental group the last time I coached a junior team. And before we played the first game of our season, which was a trial game, a preseason game, um, I asked all the parents to meet me 45 minutes before the first game we stood in a circle and I basically just laid out my expectations and my expectations were uh, number one, your job as a parent is to uh, support and love your child. Number two, uh, the two discussions we will never have is about game time and, and X's and O's. Um, you would never go to a restaurant and then tell the chef how to cook. So please don't come to the basketball court and tell me how to coach because I'm invested in my own learning and I'll take advice where I would love to seek it. Um, and I just kind of laid down the law, not in an, in an aggressive manner, but in a manner where, uh, where all the parents knew exactly what my definition of success was and, and where I'm trying to push these kids. Because game time realistically is never going to be even. Um, when winning and losing come is, comes into it, I've got to try and figure out how to get the best five for that moment in the game. And that may mean that I might have to compromise someone's game time. But then how can I give that message to young coaches? That's tough. Coaches kind of have to, uh, that's where the positive feedback loop comes in. It, coaches need to seek from more experienced coaches how they can um, approach their parent group. And I've seen different coaches do it different ways. I've seen them do it through phone, through email. I've seen some coaches do it at trials 
when they're trialing for their team and, and they get all the parents in front of them and they lay down the expectations right at trials. So that way, uh, the kids and the parents know exactly what they're signing up for. Um, and I've even, like I said before, I've even done it before the first preseason game. So all I would, all I would say is just continue to talk to other coaches about how they um, have spoken to their parent group and then take it from there. And um, I, I still remember my worst parental experience was almost the day I quit basketball coaching. And that was, that was, that was nearly uh, 10 years ago, close to the, close uh, to the month. So a couple months from now, in the middle of June, I probably got the most, um, the most degrading text I've ever gotten from a parent. And I thought to myself, I don't want to coach tomorrow. But I was so lucky because I had one of my mentors sitting in the car when I received it. And I read it out and he said to me, mate, that parent is an idiot. What you're doing is great. Um, and I wouldn't even worry about it. And if I if he wasn't there, I probably wouldn't be sitting where I am now. I might be packing vegetables in a box in a in a factory. But um, yeah, I, I would seek uh, support right away and mentorship on how to handle parents because um, parents with all the social media out there and and sometimes some parents living the life through their children, um, they can come up with their own definition of success. And if they're not on the same page as the coach, then problems may arise. So it's important to get that definition out quickly. Well, I think that's some great advice, especially with parents. It sounds uh, like it's universal. Oh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. And and there's there's one per, there's a person that I've found in the working with parents in sports space, uh, Gordon McClelland. Um, he is a U, uh, United Kingdom gentleman who who runs an organisation called Working with Parents in Sport. Um, he has some good advice about educating parents, and um, yeah, I'm giving him a little plug. And and edu educating parents in the sports space has been very very helpful. So I thoroughly recommend you check that out. No, I totally will. And we actually, uh, I'm hoping to schedule. Um, another podcast here soon that deals with that. We've got an expert uh, at uh, Utah State University and uh, I've been in contact with him and he's got some interesting, you know, kind of theories on his research that, you know, one thing we have to remember is that uh, parents a lot of times feel that they need to get a return on their investment, you know, mm -hmm. and so yeah. just kind of understanding that dynamic that, you know, while they might not be able to express it, there is some financial, you know, what am I getting out of this? Uh, you know, and so things like that, uh, like you say, us coming together as a community, uh, discussing these different things, potential solutions, um, you know, is, is always very helpful. So no, I totally agree. So I, I was going to ask next, and this is, this is a very big question, but I'm kind of interested in your perspective, especially with the job that you have. Uh, what are, what are, what would you say are, are characteristics of a good basketball coach. Now, this is, this is uh, how big can I make the net? There, <laughs> there are so many things and there are so many intangibles and I've seen, and I've seen so many um, different coaches run it different ways. And, and uh, there, are, there are two big things um, that I see in master coaches compared to novice coaches. Um, the number one thing is having a passion um, but having a passion with the a passion for the game, so it comes out enthusiastically, um, and also having a passion for the detail. Um, some of the pro coaches I met always have those two things. 
they're incredibly passionate about the game and you can sit down and talk about X's and O's until the cows come home. Um, and then secondly, uh, they also have a passion for the details. So they could break down your joint and while your joint is doing something, it affects this particular skill. And they just break things down to the nth degree and it is mightily, mightily impressive. The second thing that, that also comes to mind with, with master coaches that I've experienced has been that they've been incredibly authentic. And one of the most important lessons I, I got from Gino Oriema was it, Bobby Knight probably ruined more coaching careers than he created them. And Bobby Knight was not only authentic, but he was an unbelievable basketball mind and teacher. Um, but the point that I got out of Gino when he said that at a coach's clinic was that when you watch another coach, don't then try to take that home and be Bobby Knight because there's only one person in the world that could successfully be Bobby Knight. And that was Bobby Knight because the amount of stories that you hear about someone being inspired by watching Bobby Knight and then going to their own community and then trying to be Bobby Knight just blows everyone's mind. Um, so being authentic to yourself and really going through a path of, well, what kind of things do I like as a coach? How do I want to talk to my players? And then tripling down and excelling on that. And, uh, and that, that stuff can take years. Even the master coaches, I was, I was speaking to a master coach last week and he's been a master coach of about 30, 40 years. And, and he was telling me about um, a big teaching lesson that he learned last year that he shifted and changed even after 40 years of master coaching. And uh, not only did that blow my mind, but to kind of hear it from him, it was also humbling because we're as coaches, we're always learning something every day. So passion uh, a p passion for the enthusiasm and the detail is big. Uh, being authentic is big, but also having the ability to teach. Now, when we teach, we have to be empathetic in, and one of the things that I've picked up recently is the great discussion of, did I teach them or did they learn it? And trying to find the balance of, well, it's, I don't think it's even a balance. Like everything we should be teaching our kids, we need to make them feel that they discovered it on themselves. And that's how we kind of drive curiosity through experiential learning and questioning. Um, and then other good young coaches are, are, are very emotionally intelligent. They can put themselves in their players' shoes. And um, I was lucky enough to, to actually uh, go see a one-on-one -on -one conversation with um, Luke Longley last week. And Luke Longley was talking to the local pro team for their, for their uh, home season launch. And Luke Longley was, was talking about his admiration for Phil Jackson and how emotionally intelligent Phil Jackson was. And Luke Longley was saying that during a training, he, he was always having this issue with inconsistency. One game, he'll get 20 points and 20 boards. And then the next game, he'll do squat. And then after one practice, uh, he went up to Luke Longley and he said, Luke, how, how are you finding your consistencies with your performances? Because obviously, Phil Jackson picked it up. And so Luke kind of, he expressed his uh, feelings with the situation. And, and Phil Jackson basically said, all right, well, next time you come to training in the games, you need to leave all that rubbish at the door. And so Phil Jackson would put a physical trash can next to his locker for Luke to then put his metaphorical rubbish in the bin before he stepped on the court. And, and uh, that's what he minded about, about Phil Jackson was that he was incredibly empathetic and emotionally intelligent to understand the feelings that, that his players were going through and then try to fix it. Um, 
Another big one that's starting to show up in, in, in research and a lot of coaches are talking about, but it's important for, for good coaches to build and maintain relationships because it's a human to human interaction. And, and then the last thing I'll bring up, because I could talk about characteristics of a good basketball coach for, for, for hours, uh, but the last one, having a desire to grow and learn, like that master coach I was talking about, um, how they only learned something last year and started to implement. We're always trying to do something different every day and trying to get 1% better every day. And I think the key is the master coaches are always trying to get better. And uh, one of the biggest things that I learned last year was watching Will Weaver, um, who's now the associate assistant coach at the Houston Rockets and was formerly the head coach here at the Sydney Kings. We would go watch his trainings at the Sydney Kings and his trainings were intense. They were sharp. The guys knew exactly what they were doing, but we were observing to the side and, and, the first question Will Weaver would always ask at the end of the, at the end of training, he would walk up to us and he would say, all right, coaches, what was the worst thing that you found um, from my training? And not only was his ability to get ideas from other coaches humbling, but it also kind of puts you on the back foot because it's just a question you would never expect. So he just comes up to you and says, all right, what was the worst part of my training? And very direct, very sharp. And then you're trying to come up with, with a way to say, uh, uh, I didn't like how you did that or is there a different way you could have done that? And you could just see it in his eyes that he was incredibly open. Excuse me. He was incredibly open to ideas um, to make his training more effective and more efficient. And it was incredibly impressive to watch. So wrapping all that up, Will, that they're kind of the, the, the most general characteristic, characteristics of a good basketball coach. Well, I really appreciate that. And I, I, I learned a bunch there just thinking about, uh, you know, what, what you said and how you laid that out. And like mm. you said, this is something that we could uh, talk about for a long time. But I think yes. uh, ultimately a couple of things, you know, that stuck out is being authentic. You know, I think mm. uh, uh, when I first started, I was trying to be somebody else. Uh, yes. And, you know, and that was um, – I believe the kids could see that I wasn't being necessarily sincere, you know, not that I was lying to them, but they just knew, well, that's not, <laughs> that's not what he's, he's like. So coming to terms there. And then as far as, you know, I think a, a, a key for me too has been the idea of reflection, you know, totally. and bringing up the stuff that you've been talking about, thinking about, you know, what went bad, um, mm -hmm. you know, what, what did I do well, you know, how can we make the thing that went bad go well the next time and stuff. And so that's been a big, uh, progression. And I think, uh, for me as a coach. Yeah. Reflection is the most powerful tool. All right. So, you know, um, another reason why I got a hold of you is because in Australia, there's a accreditation process and mm -hmm. which you talked about, we don't really have anything like that in the state of Idaho. So what's kind of the accreditation process that coaches go through in Australia? So uh, coach education from a national sporting organization is, is important for the development of new people getting involved with our sport because um, in our system in Australia, it's very much you pay to play the sport. 
And then hopefully one day you enjoy playing the sport so much that you get addicted to the competitiveness that you then end up playing for the national team and then uh, end up playing professional basketball or professional sports. So our national governing body, Basketball Australia, is split up into state bodies. So we have Basketball New South Wales, who is my employer. Um, We have Basketball Queensland, Basketball Victoria, Basketball Tasmania. And there's a state sporting organisation for each state. Now, the accreditation process, um, it comes from Basketball Australia and every sport uh, has it and every sport is kind of heading in this direction. Um, and the, incredi- the, accreditation, uh, the accreditations are basically pieces of paper and invested time that coaches put themselves into to align their education with the National Sporting Organisations branch. Um, So what coaches in New South Wales have to do before they're allowed to coach junior representative basketball, which is kind of the top level of of basketball that you can play as a youth athlete, um, you have to be an accredited coach. Now, the different levels, we have the level one and level two and level three and level four. Uh, Level one, we call the club coach accreditation. And that is the foundational level for all coaches coming into the sport can put themselves through. Uh, And that's a six hour course uh, over one day. And in that course, coaches will sit down for three hours and do a whole bunch of activities and and take some content from the presenter and the facilitator. Um, And then the other three hours are experiential learning where the facilitator then has to go around and mark each participant as competent or not yet competent. Um, Now, it's incredibly difficult to be marked out as not yet competent because basically you have to just get there and lay on the ground and not do anything. (laughs) But if coaches can at least show the presenter that they can coach and they can impart knowledge, they can demonstrate, they can provide feedback, then we can mark you off as an accredited coach for two years. Um, now, every sport in Australia does that. And, and the, the more coaches want to learn, uh, the higher accreditation they can apply for. Um, by the time coaches get to performance coach level, then that's when it be, the accreditations start to become invitational. So if there are coaches that are doing an unbelievable job at their level um, and they get identified, then we can nominate them to be, uh, to be invited to... Uh, increase their accreditation and prove it. Um, And that's completely up to Basketball Australia to give them the tick or the cross. Uh, And coaches will get the best learning if they just take themselves through that experience. Um, And then by getting their accreditation, they can coach at certain levels. And and by getting their education, uh, they'll have a base understanding and, and, and knowledge of what they need to teach the kids as well as most importantly, meeting other coaches at these courses. Um, And because connection and and reflection are are so powerful for these young coaches to then take in and then go into their basketball community to continuously grow. So the accreditation process um, is very important for Australian basketball coaches and uh, all the coaches are complying and they're doing a fantastic job out there. And the game is definitely growing here down under because every course we go to, there's just more and more coaches wanting to get involved with the game. And, and um, yeah, we're always trying to catch up to USA basketball, mate. One day we'll uh, try to get that gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this a little bit later, but I think, uh, you know, there's <laughs> uh, 
Australia, Canada, you know, some other countries are doing a really, really good job of teaching coaches how to, how to coach the game. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, wise and knowledgeable people out there sharing their lessons. And uh, it's, it's an overwhelmingly grateful community because the power of Twitter um, and even connecting over Zoom like this has been fantastic. So um, this kind of leads into my next question. Um, and you were talking about it, uh, just a you know entry level coach. I live in a smaller rural community where most of the players that are good end up on our high school team. Um, and we just recently started a youth club uh, a few years ago. So I was kind of wondering, you know, what do you believe the role of the head coach at the top should be in relation to the younger programs or the younger teams? So I'll, I'll just need some context on, on this, if you mind, Will. Mm -hmm. So when you say the youth club, what age groups do you cover? And do all those kids go to the same school or are they a part of the community? Uh, so it's a community where we've got um, different elementary schools. Um, yeah. and, but uh, so they'll come together. They don't necessarily go to school together, um, yeah. but they'll come be part of this club program. Uh, basically, it starts with uh, third graders. So we're talking about seven, eight years old. Okay. So you're, and uh, is the youth club aware that they're feeding the high school team? And is the high school aware that they get a lot of their kids from this youth club? Yes. Uh, that's in the mission statement of the youth club is to ultimately lead kids into playing at that varsity level. So if I was the head coach of this top team, I would sit down the, the head coach of the high school team and say, what kinds of things are you looking for from the players that you want to recruit? Um, and I, I, if this was an Australian club, you know, I would talk about being fundamental, making good decisions, being able to guard the ball one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and then there could be other situational concepts that you might put in there. So, whether your, whether your kids need to learn how to set cross screens or on balls or screenaways or back screens or wide pin downs, whatever it may be, there's, excuse me, there's a competency that the kids need to have by the time they're fed into the high school team. So if I'm the head coach, I would need to, number one, have an understanding of the style of play that you guys want to play. So are you a full court, man-to-man, hard-nosed kind of area? Or are you a kind of slow down, play man in the half court, funnel the ball to the sideline or funnel the ball to the middle kind of club? Um, now, the, the other thing goes the same way with offense. What kind of skills do we want our kids to have? So we want them to be completely ambidextrous. So we might say, all right, at the under 16s level, we need to teach all our kids in order to enable to, they need to be finishing off one and two feet around the rim with both hands. Uh, they need to come off cross screens and then understand the reads to do with cross screens. Um, they need to understand how to set great on balls and then particular angles with on balls and not only on the offensive side, but then again, how you would defend that. Um, but then stemming that down all the way to your third graders and saying, all right, well, what's the base skills? Well, if I'm a third grade coach, I need to have uh, the ability to dribble with both hands, make a layup with both hands, uh, making a healthy decision from the three-point line. If my defender does close out, I'm driving to the rim. If my defender doesn't close out, I'm comfortable with the three-point shot. Um, spacing and offensive concepts. So 
I could go down a checklist, but I, if I was the top high school coach, I would understand what those concepts and, and the style of play is, um, unpack that style of play, and then come up with a matrix or a checklist of skills that kids need to be introduced with, uh, refined, and then mastered um, at certain age groups. So if, if we're talking about the, the layup, then kids need to be introduced to the right and left-hand layup at a third grade level. Then that needs to be refined between grades four to seven. Then from seven to nine, they need to have it mastered. So can they uh, jump as high as they can on their finish? Are they shooting high and soft? Are their eyes fixed on the target when they finish? Uh, are they, can they finish with the defender behind them? Can they finish with the defender in front of them on left shoulder or on right shoulder? Um, as well as being able to, to make appropriate reads out of that, whether a teammate on the perimeter is open. Um, so really unpacking that and, and providing that with your coaches, then it's the time to educate your coaches about that. So you might have to educate them about one language because you don't want to go to India and then start speaking English to everyone. You've got to be speaking the same language so you know what the hell is going on. So it's the exact same thing with coaches. Coaches need to be speaking the same language. Um, they need to speak the same language so they can teach that language to the kids so that when the kids go, go up through the teams, they know exactly what the coaches are talking about. Um, and then by the time they get to that top level and a high school is looking at them, then they can say, wow, we have this really large pool of talent. Uh, we can pick whatever we like. And if there's a coach that doesn't agree with, with the language that you're teaching them or the concepts, then we must approach those with those coaches with empathy and respect and say, all right, well, what are your thoughts? And then just sit down, have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. Here's why we're teaching this language and here's why it's important. Are you in or are you out? And then just trying to keep up with the coaches and just say, hey, this is what we want to teach your kids and this is why we want to teach your kids. Um, do you agree with us? And if you don't agree, um, we're not going to be rude to you but we're going to provide coaches who are sold in to our system the opportunity to get involved. So that's not, uh, that's not saying that we don't want you to be a part of it. We want you to be a part of it, but there's just another coach who's, who's putting in more time and investment into what we're trying to get done. So that would be a way to try and get everyone on the same page. Oh, that's some great stuff there. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, it sounds like we're kind of on the right track because those are things that uh, we're starting to discuss. And as the head coach <laughs> at the, of the high school team, um, yeah, I'm going to be busy this offseason. <laughs> <laughs> it all starts with a conversation, coach. It all yeah, starts with a conversation. For sure. Um, kind of speaking along those lines. So, you know, and this was a discussion I was having with the president of our uh, – of. Um, our club, how should the game be introduced to the younger players and say like the six to nine range? How should it be introduced? Well, number one, there needs to be the carrot dangled in front of them, um, which is this is basketball. This is incredibly fun. Um, let me show you how fun it is. And here's the potential thing that could happen when you get older, if you play basketball. Um, there's teaching six-year-olds is a very interesting exercise <laughs> because it's almost like you're, you're teaching someone to do their shoelace in your head. It makes sense. 
but then teaching a five-year-old who's never seen a basketball before um, it, it is still quite, is still tricky, but it's, it's a lot of fun. So um, taking kids through uh, completely engaging games and using the games approach. Have you ever, have you ever heard of the games approach and using small sided games coach? Oh yeah. In fact, uh, in our high school program, that's, uh, we, we pretty much use that exclusively now. Yeah, that's a, it's a great way to teach a game. And uh, let's take a brand new six-year-old, for example, and they're having their first class. Uh, my goal as a coach, and this is very specific to Australian culture, um, because there's so much choice, uh, kids and parents can, can select a sport based on the enjoyment. So we're trying to sell the game of basketball to younger beginners that basketball is the most fun game you can play. So if I had a six-year-old, the first goal would be that they walk in with a smile on their face. Um, so as the parent and the kid walks up to the court, I'm giving them a fist bump and saying, hey, my name's Coach Jared, what's your name? And then I'll introduce myself to the parents and hey, welcome to the basketball court. Do you know anyone here? And they might say yes, they might say no. And if they don't, then it might be as valuable as introducing them to someone. And for girls, that's powerful. Um, getting that social connection in sport for them is unreal and, and they'll, uh, they'll find best friends on the court. And certainly that's what happened to me. Uh, my, my two best friends in my life, I played basketball with and, uh, and they were the only two guys I ever, ever got into a fist fight with. And uh, <laughs> next, thing you, next thing you know, we're our best friends. Um, and, uh, and if I was to teach them the game, I would say, look, this is a basketball the way you, you play basketball is you just got to put this bouncy round thing into that tall round thing there. Um, and, and you should give it a go. All right, give it a go. Uh, they might miss a few times, but when uh, they make the first shot, just make it like it's Christmas. Great job. That's your first ever basket. How exciting is this? And then you've planted the seed. They want more. They want to make more baskets. They'll work on their game. They'll try to figure things out and you need to let them, uh, you need to let them go through the experience of learning those skills, but also making them feel that they learnt those skills themselves. So if we're teaching dribbling, for example, I might say, all right, boy, boys and girls, everyone hold the ball with two hands and now drop the ball. Does anyone notice what happens to the basketball when you drop it? And then they'll all say, oh, just bounce back up. Yeah. Okay. So if we want to keep the ball bouncing, what might we need to do? So in your head as a coach, you already know the answer, but you're trying to fish it out of the kids. So, and the only thing with questioning is it takes time and you need a lot of time <laughs> with six year olds. So you might be fishing for this answer. And then one kid will say, coach, I can put my hand on top of the ball and I can just keep hitting it. And it's like, now we're starting to discover things about the game. And then that's where it all starts. Just touching the ball, seeing what happens when I bounce it. And then you can translate that to other skills. What happens if I push it towards a teammate? I'm passing it. What happens when I'm in danger and a defender's coming up to me and I have to turn on one foot and I have to pivot? Yes, you do have to pivot. You have to protect the ball. That's very important. When you're close to the rim, you have to throw it up and hopefully it'll go on the top side of the rim to try and go in. <laughs> so uh, taking those kids through that experiential learning is highly rewarding. And 
the thing that I got addicted to as a young coach was seeing the smile that these kids were having the first time they scored or the first time they did something. And uh, that's why I got so addicted to, to just coaching more coaches. And if I was going to introduce the game to younger, to younger players, number one, it'd be come to basketball and leave the basketball stadium with a smile on your face um, and then just build skills through a whole bunch of experiential learning. And then using the games approach so kids can then just be completely engaged all the time. And long gone are the days of the three-man weave where there's three lines on the baseline and then kids just pass to one side and then run around in a very confusing pattern that beginners never usually get. Why not just have them in pairs, one basketball between two and continuously pass to each other and just move around? And the three-man weave is, it's, is still used. Um, but the argument I always say is that there are so many other simpler drills out there that do so many other things that the three-man weave has just kind of gone down the pecking order. And if I was to introduce the game, that's exactly what I would do. Smiles, experiential learning, build their confidence by letting them know what they're doing is right, and then consistently going through a process of trial and error and providing feedback. And then hopefully they get to a point where it's like, coach, I want to try and win some basketball games. All right, well, <laughs> go play in a basketball team. And then that's where the kid, well, that's where the young kids get more and more competitive. And Josh Green was a clear example. Josh Green came from our area in Western Sydney and grew up in the youth system there. And from a young age, Josh Green was as competitive as anything and uh, got drafted 18th by the uh, Dallas Mavericks. So shout out to Josh Green. Uh, funny you brought that up because uh, today uh, they're announcing the NCAA uh, uh, tournament field, and I, I actually saw him. They were interviewing him about uh, last year when they uh, had to, oh, had, to shut it, had, yeah, had to shut it down. So anyway, uh, irony. So, hey, um, speaking of that, do you think, um, or speaking of what you were just talking about, and I know that this is uh, something that you know is <laughs> debated. Um, do you think that there's a right mix between practice and development and then playing? Uh, am I coming from a context of, of right now in, in watching coaches coach their teams? Uh, yeah. 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 So um, if we attack this from both perspectives, if we were to put kids through a process of just practicing and developing with playing no games, then they'll get to a point where they, they are just seeking validation um, for what they're doing is right. Because at the end of the day, we're playing the game to end up playing five on five. Um, and I need to know whether my skills are ready for that level. So for beginners and amateurs, doing a practice and development program with no play could be healthy. Um, but how long that could be, is, is arguable because they'll get to a time where they're competent in the development program, but we're not sure how they'll go in the game. So we need to double check that. Now, if we go the other direction and let's say there was a kid who was just playing nothing but games, five on five every day, out on the courts, just scrimmaging um, with no practice and development, then how do you provide feedback? How do you know whether this kid is, is doing the right thing and how are they growing in confidence? because they might be playing the game, but what will happen if they go through a series of games where they haven't made a shot and they just miss a shot, miss a shot, miss a shot, and no one is just kind of helping them and guiding them and mentoring them on, on how to do the same thing because there needs to be a process of feedback. So 
finding a balance. Yes, there needs to be a balance of both practice and the game. Um, and everyone is different. Um, but I don't know what the perfect formula is. Uh, I, I, some coaches may argue that having two a days or three day trainings are healthy with one game a week. Uh, but then there's the argument of, well, we're breaking their bodies because they're just never having time to heal physically with their bones and their muscles. So there's the risk of injury. But then there's also the other side of the argument, which is, well, if I just train once or twice a week and then I have a game once a month, is that good enough? Yeah, I don't know. But at least they're playing a game to, to try and get that validation. So I don't know what the perfect answer is, but there definitely needs to be um, twice as much preparation and development to the time of performance. And that could be the least amount of time. If a kid was training one hour a week for one hour of play, uh, at least they'd put themselves in the process. But having two to one um, is, is, I guess, a good starting point. And I don't know whether that's actually the magical magical formula. And if you ask me tomorrow, I might have a different answer. <laughs> um, but that the, the practice and development to play um, is, is necessary and, and valuable. Uh, wow. I, I, you know, he brought up some things that I never thought about, but, um, one thing I did realize is this summer, um, we were allowed to practice, but we couldn't compete. And, uh, you know, fortunately I had kids that would come every day and, and, you know, like, um, brought up earlier, we would do small sided games and play five on five against each other. But on the other hand, we just did not know, okay, are, are we getting better? Uh, yeah. players didn't know, are we getting better? Uh, where do we stand versus, you know, the competition. And so yeah. I know that that was pretty frustrating for the kids. It was also pretty frustrating for me because, you know, you use that as a measuring tool to find out, okay, what do we need to get better at? And so, yeah. you know, um, but on the other hand, um, I've also been in situations where we play four games, five games in a week, uh, or sometimes in our summer we'll play like, you know, 20, 25 games and have like two practices and it's like, well, are the kids getting a lot out of this either? So, you know, yeah, you know it's yeah. uh, just a balance that you, you got to try to find. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. Well, I got a couple more questions for you. I really appreciate your time. This has been great. Um, so, you know, we, we were talking about this a little bit earlier about, you know, I believe, and especially doing this, uh, this podcast, cause I've had the opportunity to talk to a few, uh, coaches, um, throughout the world. Um, but I think there's a slow realization in our country based off of looking at college and NBA rosters that other countries like Australia and Canada are doing a great job developing high level players. So I was just wondering, what do you emphasize in the development and how are you teaching skills and concepts to the younger players in, in Australia? Great question. Um, it's very common, it, no matter where you go in Australia and you speak to a basketball coach, everyone's on the same page about the game being player-centered, coach-driven and administration-supported. And if we're thinking about the game being player-centered, there's something called the holistic athlete approach. And when we talk about the holistic athlete approach, coaches are getting smarter about the way that they coach their players. And the holistic uh, athlete approach is, is basically saying that when you coach a kid or you coach an athlete, you have to be aware of their physical, uh, their emotional, their mental, um, 
as well as their spiritual, if you want to go that deep, and have an understanding of where they are. Um, there are different measurements. There are different ways you can measure that. Like you can take your kids through physical screening to understand where they are physically. You can sit down and, and talk to them one-on-one -on -one to understand where they are emotionally, um, which is also helpful for, for, their, uh, for their relationship building. Um, and then having an understanding of where they are mentally and spiritually just by paying attention to what kind of religious background they come from or just kind of talking to their parents and understanding their context. So coaches are getting educated about approaching plays with that kind of mindset. And it, long gone are the days where a coach is uh, do as I say and not as I do. It's very much how can I put myself in the athlete's shoes and fully understand what they're going through. So how can a, how do we educate coaches about that? Um, number one, we teach them to be empathetic. So we're always encouraging them to be reflective and try to teach them to put themselves in their shoes, um, as well as be evidence-based learners from a coach perspective. And we have a lot of great coaches that share a whole bunch of knowledge. And we have a lot of great coaches from different sports who share a great bunch of knowledge because we have so many professional leagues for so many different sports in Australia. It's ridiculous. We have AFL, the Australian football league. We have NRL, we have super rugby, which is rugby union, another form of grabbing and hugging people in a very aggressive manner. We have uh, professional basketball. We have professional soccer. We have uh, professional baseball. We have professional netball. Um, and uh, we even have uh, uh, national athletics carnivals um, whole year round. And, just like the United States, there are all these sports uh, and all these great coaches come from so many different sports. And these great coaches talk to each other. And there's a very common, another very common saying that the sporting world talks. And one of the best things that social media has done is that it's connected coaches from uh, the furthest corners in the world to then communicate with each other. And European coaches, American coaches, even North American coaches and Canadian coaches and South American coaches and Australian coaches, they've been having regular conversations. Now, how do we teach these concepts and these, these uh, skills to these kids? We teach coaches to take their kids through experiential learning. Now, what are we teaching them? We have something called the super six in Australia. The super six skills, excuse me, are passing, dribbling, shooting and finishing footwork and pivoting, one-on-one -on -one defense, which includes rebounding, and then decision-making. So we try to teach our coaches from the club coach accreditation that kids need to be fully competent in the super six skills. And from a representative level, kids are introduced very young to these super six skills. Um, they are refined as they get older. And then the first national team is uh, constructed at U-17s. Uh, the best kids from each state will play an Australian Junior National Championship, and that's a talent identification tournament for the Australian coaches to then go along and, and ID some kids. Um, and if they're fully competent in those areas, not only do they understand the language, uh, but they also understand the skills that they need to be aware of and get better at. Um, so we constantly put out YouTube videos to our coaches about how to work on particular skills um, and some, some drills and skills that coaches are using nowadays to work on particular concepts. Um, and the concepts uh, are the same as well because 
Basketball is all about creating space, reading space, and attacking space. And a lot of the younger coaches and a lot of the novice coaches only know how to teach attacking space. And then as coaches get older and more experienced, then they learn how to teach kids how to create space. But the master coaches then really teach kids how to read the space. Because at the end of the day, the defense is always wrong because there's always a counter to what that defender does. Then the offense can just do the opposite thing. So defense is always trying to catch up to the offense because there's always an offensive-minded genius out there who just figures something else out um, around the defense. And how do we teach that concept? We, we try to come up with a style of play that allows kids to read the defense in front of them and then react accordingly. All our states and our coaches, we encourage them to teach our players um, how to read defense. So trying to avoid the set play where it's A to B to C to D, um, instead of just teaching them, uh, go A to B, but if B's taken away, then try C. If C's taken away, then try D. So instead of A to B, it's A to B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> and then just trying to get them to see what's in front of them and, and teaching coaches and kids that at a young age can be challenging um, but it's worth the adventure because when you see a coach have a eureka moment it's one of the best feelings in the world uh, yeah and I think you know um, one of the things that I've learned and kind of um, uh, studying this is that uh, as you've said before you got to be patient and it takes some time it does and and especially with for example, the motion offense, which is still relevant um, in this day and age because motion offense is a set of rules dependent on what the defense does. Um, that kind of offense to teach kids takes time and it takes more than 12 months. It takes years and years within a program for a kid to understand, all right, my defense is doing this, now I need to react appropriately. And uh, and the... the uh, the hard yards down that offense is definitely worth it because kids will then move on from your program being intelligent and being, uh, they can fit into any offense and have an understanding of if my defender's standing here, this is what I need to do. I think, uh, you know, just anecdotally what I've heard, why coaches like Australian players, why they like Canadian players is because they can put them into any system and, and they usually do really well. Yeah, and that's credit to all the hardworking coaches out there that have not only put in the time for these kids, um, but have also educated younger coaches on, on how to teach similar ways. And we have a, we have a lot of hardworking people in this country, and, and yeah, we're very, we're very lucky and, and, and very grateful for that. All right, last question for you. So what are you focusing on right now in your development as a basketball coach? So great question. Uh, there are multiple things. Multiple things. One of the most um, great pieces of advice I got from the master coach when I started this job was that I wasn't going to be the messiah of all basketball knowledge in the world. And I was very, very nervous when I got this job. And he said, it's not your job to know everything, but it's your job to be there for as many people as you can. And I took that... Um, I took that wholeheartedly and, and that's, and I thought to myself, you know what, that's something I can do. So 
there are definitely a lot of things that I, that I'd like to work on personally. The things that I'm paying attention to right now is um, improving my attention to detail because my enthusiasm is, is undeniable, but my attention and detail needs a lot of work. So how am I fixing that? I'm watching a lot of films. Um, and while I watch a lot of film and a question pops up and I can't find a reliable answer from a lot of the reliable sources I have, then I'll pick up the phone and call one of my mentors or just duck them an email. Um, then if that question leads them down a path where I need to research something, then I'll probably go down a path of going down evidence-based research. And then if more questions pop up, I might even contact that person who, who wrote that paper and try to pick their brain. Um, other, other than that, I'm always trying to figure out uh, the ability to get the best from my athletes and, and how to efficiently and effectively articulate things to them to say, you know what, I want to run through a wall through this, through this gentleman. And that takes everything from paying attention to their characteristics and their personalities, as well as just kind of spending time with them. And, and one of the big things at the moment that I need to do better as a coach is just building and maintaining a relationship with my players and, you know, about it being about their life and not necessarily the game because they're X's and O's and coaches are so right. And it's so cliche when you hear it as a young coach, but the X's and O's will take care of itself. It's just the highs and hellos that, that really we need to, to look after. Um, on top of that, the ability to plan more effectively and, and having plan A to Z. And I love Bill Belichick's saying about this, but um, he always says, you don't need to go very far. You need to go an inch far, but you need to go a mile deep. And having a deep understanding of what you're teaching, why you're teaching it, and then the counters around that. So planning effectively to, to what I want my philosophy and, and my plan to be is something that I'm always striving to get better at. Well, Jared, I really appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun and I've learned uh, a, a lot from you. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, connecting uh, down the road and, and uh, this has been, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, Will, I'm honored, mate. And, uh, if I can at least help one coach out there, I've done my job. But uh, all credit to you listeners for um, taking the time to develop and uh, improve yourself. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Idaho Basketball Coaching Podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email me at idahobasketballcoachingpodcast at gmail.com. 